Hello, I'm Ross Royden, the Vicar of Christchurch Kowloon Tong here in Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to my podcast. This podcast is for the presentation of Christ in the temple. The transcript of the talk can be found on my website, rossroyden.com. It is also posted in the Christchurch Facebook group. Please share the link to the podcast with anyone who you think may find it of interest. The next podcast will be next Sunday, February the 7th, for the second Sunday before Lent. I wish you and your family God's blessing and peace in the week ahead. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it is written in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning to read at the 22nd verse. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. This week is the presentation of Christ in the temple. It is otherwise known as Candlemas. The tradition is that if you don't take your Christmas decorations down on Twelfth Night, which is the evening of January the 5th, they should stay up until Candlemas, which is officially on Tuesday. This period between the end of Christmas and Candlemas is known by some churches as the season of Epiphany. 
We began Epiphany by reading about how the wise men came seeking him who was born king of the Jews. The following week, we saw how at the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven announced that Jesus was the Son of God. The phrase Son of God in the Old Testament is used both of Israel and the king. The New Testament writers see it as referring to the Messiah, the coming king of Israel, who they believe is Jesus. As well as describing Jesus' role, it also describes his relationship with God as his father. On the second Sunday of Epiphany, we turned our attention to John the Baptist and to the calling of Jesus' first disciples. This was in the first chapter of St. John's Gospel. John is questioned by representatives of the ruling authorities in Jerusalem. He replies to them that the reason he came baptizing was so that Jesus, whom he identifies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, might be revealed to Israel. John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. John's endorsement of Jesus as the one who is coming, the one he has been preparing people for through his baptism, leads to some of John the Baptist's disciples becoming disciples of Jesus instead. They become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah of whom Moses and also the prophets wrote. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. Jesus tells them that they will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon him. Last week, we read about how Jesus revealed his glory through the first sign that he performed at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' glory is to be seen not simply in the provision of wine at the wedding, but in what Jesus' provision of the wine represents and points to. Jesus is the divine bridegroom, spoken of by the prophets, who gives the new wine of his kingdom to those who believe in him. Our gospel readings over the past few weeks are full of references and images drawn from Israel's scriptures. The gospel writers use them to show that Jesus is the Messiah whom God promised to his people. The readings describe how in fulfillment of the scriptures, the Messiah, the Son of God, came unto his own. The emphasis in both the Hebrew scriptures and the Gospels themselves is almost exclusively on the Messiah and his people. It would be easy to conclude from them that the Messiah has only come to his own people. Indeed, in considering Jesus' earthly ministry, we would be right to think like this. On one occasion, Jesus himself says explicitly, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As non-Jews, if we were reading the Gospels for the first time, we might initially assume that there is nothing in the story of Jesus for us. It is only when we look again more closely that we start to hope that the Messiah might just have something to offer us too. The problem that I've been seeking to draw our attention to in this series of sermons for Epiphany is just how quickly we who are not Jews assume that what the Messiah offers is not only for us too, but that it is primarily for us. We fail to see, or should that be refuse to see, that Jesus came first and foremost to his own. It is for the Jew first. 
The ascendancy of the Gentiles in the church, however, has led, as St. Paul feared it would, to arrogance on our part and, tragically, to the anti-Semitism that is very much still with us. But it is not only the Jewish people who have suffered as a consequence of the church abandoning and forgetting its roots. By our failure to see Jesus as one of his own, as the King of Israel, we have a distorted image of Jesus, an unhistorical Jesus. We try to shape his image into an image that we can recognize in a misguided attempt to see him more clearly. All too often what we end up seeing is no more than our own reflection. There is, however, a reason why the church at first, after our Lord's resurrection, found it so hard to work out what to do with Gentiles who were believing in Christ. Jesus had not taught his followers what they should do when Gentiles also wanted to believe in him, so they were completely unprepared for it when it happened. Jesus' earthly ministry was as, as, was as the Messiah whose ministry was to his own people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to whom he had been sent. St. Paul describes Gentiles believing in Christ as a mystery that had not been made known previously, which would, but which had only now been revealed. No one had seen this coming, and it had been revealed not in the teaching of Jesus, but through the Holy Spirit in the teaching of the holy apostles and prophets. The problem for us today is the other way around. It is not the problem of seeing how the Gentiles fit into God's plan, but seeing how Christ fits into the life and faith of his own, the Jewish people to whom he came. Christmas and Epiphany, with their focus on the coming of Christ, are a time to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and of why he came. It is a time for us to see him again as the Messiah promised in the scriptures, sent to his own as one of his own. It is only when we see him in this way that we will begin to appreciate the incredible privilege we have been given of being allowed to share in the promises of God and to become part of his people. It is only when we see him this way that we see him for who he really is. Jesus' life and teaching, his death and resurrection, simply make no sense if we separate them from the history and life of his people and his ministry to them. St. Matthew and St. Luke, in their account of the birth of Jesus, go out of their way to assess the worship, history, beliefs, and life of Israel as the context and foundation for the coming of Jesus and for everything he says and does. We cannot hope to understand the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus until we read them from this perspective. I have previously mentioned Marcion, who lived in the second century. He was one of the original anti-Semites. He hated the Old Testament God and the Jewish influence on the church. And he sought to rid Christianity of all traces of Judaism. He compiled a list of books that he thought should function as the church's scriptures. Of the Gospels, he included only St. Luke's Gospel. Significantly, however, he left out of his edited version of St. Luke's Gospel the first two chapters of it, 
the two chapters that describe Jesus' birth. And he did this precisely because in them, St. Luke makes Jesus' Jewishness foundational to Jesus' life and teaching. The church rejected Marcion as a heretic, but his way of thinking is dominant in the church today. It can be seen, for example, in the rejection of the Old Testament by some Christians and its neglect by many others. Once, however, we allow our thinking to be reoriented to so that we see Jesus as part of his people and their story, that the New Testament itself takes on a whole new meaning, which is, of course, its original and intended meaning. In our Gospel reading this week, we read of how Mary and Joseph are bringing our Lord up according to the law. He has already been given the name of a famous figure in Israel's history, Joshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. He is circumcised on the eighth day, as the law prescribes. At 40 days, Jesus' parents take him to the temple in Jerusalem. This is now known as the presentation of Christ in the temple. But first of all, it is the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, not because she has done anything wrong, but because it was something required by the law for ritual purity. They didn't have to take Jesus with them for Mary's purification, but they did so because, again, the law also required that the firstborn be consecrated to the Lord. St. Luke couldn't put it any more clearly that Mary and Joseph are Torah-observant Jews who do everything strictly by the book. While they're in the temple, Mary and Joseph encounter a man called Simeon. He is someone who is waiting for the consolation of Israel and who has been told by the Holy Spirit that he won't die until he has seen the Messiah. It is the Holy Spirit that leads Simeon into the temple to the child Jesus and his parents. Simeon himself reacts to seeing the Messiah for the first time with the famous words of what we now know as the Nunc Dimittis. This is the hymn which begins, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Simeon says that his eyes have now seen God's salvation. He is holding it in his arms. The words he speaks over the child are from the prophet Isaiah. While there, Mary and Joseph also meet Anna, a prophetess with a rich Israelite heritage. Anna has spent most of her life in the temple. Seeing the child, she can't wait to tell everyone who, like her, are looking for the redemption of Israel. Everything that happens takes place in the context of and in, and in obedience to Israel's law. St. Luke's account is grounded in Israel's history and looks forward to her future hope. It is full of allusions and references to the scriptures. St. John says simply, Jesus came unto his own. St. Luke paints a picture in words of what this looked like. So how should we Gentiles respond to all this today? Firstly, by reading the scriptures, by reading the scriptures. When the Bible uses the word scriptures, the word usually has only one meaning, what we refer to today as the Old Testament. 
Many people cite the words of St. Paul in his second letter to Timothy as a reason why we should take the Bible seriously as the word of God. St. Paul writes, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As originally written, however, St. Paul is referring to what we now know as the Old Testament writings. The irony today is that we give this special status to the writings that the church has added to the scriptures and largely ignore the original and actual scriptures that St. Paul said were inspired by God and which are therefore useful to us. Of course we should read the New Testament, but those who wrote the books of the New Testament were themselves so steeped in the scriptures that for us not to know the scriptures is to miss references, images, and allusions, many of which the New Testament writers simply assume we will see and recognize. Our Lord, from the moment he began his earthly ministry, quoted the scriptures. Our Lord took the scriptures seriously. As his followers, so should we. Last week, for example, our gospel reading was St. John's account of the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Most believers, when they read this passage, focus on the water made wine. The message they take away is that God gives freely and abundantly. Now that's true. But anyone who knew the scriptures reading St. John's Gospel would immediately be on the alert once they knew that the Messiah was going to a wedding. That's how God's relationship with Israel is described in the scriptures. And the provision of abundant wine would immediately identify Jesus as the Messiah the prophets had written about in them. If we take time to read the New Testament, we will get a lot out of it. But we will get much more out of it if we read both the Old and New Testaments together. In other words, if we read the, the whole Bible and not just our favorite bits of it. Secondly, we should respond by waiting for our redemption. Simeon and Anna were both waiting for the consolation and redemption of Israel. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah and for what God had promised his people. We too are waiting for the coming of Christ and for what God has promised us. Except we're not really. We think we don't have to wait for anything. We're going to heaven when we die, so there is no need for us to wait for the coming of Christ, for anything to happen that matters to us individually. It will all happen to us automatically when we die. In the meantime, we can just get on with our lives. If we believe in the coming of Christ at all, we see it more like the icing on the cake. We think that nothing in principle that is directly of concern to us will be affected by it. But our hope as believers is not going to heaven when we die. Our hope is for the glory of God, which we will only experience when Christ comes again. It is then that God's promises to us will be fulfilled and God's plan for his creation will be brought to completion. Yes, as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, there is much that has already happened, but there is much still to happen. 
Simeon and Anna, like Jesus' first disciples, were waiting for the redemption of Israel. We too are waiting for redemption. St. Paul writes, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Sadly, although we too must wait, unlike Simeon, Anna, and Jesus' first disciples, we do not devote ourselves to waiting. Such devotion we leave to monks and nuns and people like them. Not only do we not want to become monks and nuns ourselves, worse than that, we don't really think that what they do is either important or necessary. Often we even despise the work they do or think they are wasting their time, not to mention their lives. Why spend so much time waiting on God and praying? Why not do something useful instead? Well, God doesn't want us all to become like monks and nuns, but he does call some to the work of prayer. And rather than despising them, we should respect them and be thankful for the prayers they offer on behalf of us all. However, just because God doesn't call most of us to this form of devotion, it doesn't mean we are not called to alternative forms of devotion as we await the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, whatever our calling, are to live lives pleasing to God as we wait for our redemption so that we may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We too are to study the scriptures and to pray. That we should live lives pleasing to God, we are at least able to understand, even if we fail to live them. But where we ask, do we get the time to study and to pray? We have careers that need pursuing, families that need raising, bills that need paying. When are we supposed to get the time to study and pray? Well, this is all true, and it would be a good reason for not studying and praying, except that we do have time for Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp groups, WeChat, YouTube, and all the online activities and apps we devote so much of our time to. So why does it feel like we don't have time for study and prayer when we do have time for all these other things? It's not just that we don't think study and prayer is important. We genuinely feel that we don't have time. One reason I suggest is that we think of study and prayer as something that is separate to our lives and not part of them. When St. Paul told the Thessalonian believers to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all circumstances, he didn't mean that they should stop doing what they were doing and only pray instead. He was encouraging them to see prayer as an integral part of their daily lives and activities rather than as something distinct from them. Most of us are not going to give up our phones and going online anytime soon. So why not incorporate some of the excellent resources that are available to us into what we do online? There are so many that there really is no excuse. In fact, there are so many, the problem is often that we do not know where to start. 
So let me suggest three good places to begin. Firstly, there is our church Facebook group. Secondly, there is the Bible Project, which I've been recommending to people. And thirdly, there is the Word on Fire. You can read about these two, the Bible Project and the Word on Fire, in our Facebook group. There are many others, and more traditional ways still have a lot to offer those who are willing to make the effort. Waiting is not passive, something that happens to us, but active, something we do. What is needed is commitment and imagination. We do have the time. What we need is the desire. Thirdly and finally, we should respond with a sense of excitement. Simeon, Anna, and the first disciples whose calling we have been reading about in Epiphany were all waiting for the coming of the Messiah. We can still sense their excitement at having found him. The excitement of Simeon, who takes the baby in his arm and says to God that now he can die in peace. Of Anna, who tells everyone in Jerusalem who is waiting for the redemption of Israel that the moment has arrived. Of the first disciples who tell each other, we have found him and who believe in him and follow him as a consequence. The gospel message is exciting and people have been caught up in the excitement ever since. So have we the same sense of excitement and expectation. The truth is that often we simply don't get it. There is a weariness and tiredness in much that passes for Christianity. We've become all too caught up in the affairs of the society in which we live and worn down by the world around us. It is unlikely that anyone would want to join us, for example, because they were excited by what we were saying. I think this must be one of the greatest tragedies about the church, that we have taken the gospel of Christ and make it appear boring and irrelevant to people's lives. At least if people hated us, it would suggest that they understood something of what we are saying. As it is, most of the time, they don't even think it is worth disagreeing with us. We need, as believers, to regain the sense of excitement the first followers of Jesus felt. This cannot be manufactured. We can't fake the excitement. We need to feel it. And we will only feel it and be excited by the message of the gospel when our eyes are opened and we see just how exciting the message of the gospel really is. St. Paul wrote, but just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. St. Paul tells the believers in Corinth that all things are ours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours, he writes. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. St. Peter described the message we have received as something that angels long to see. Simeon felt his life was complete when he saw the Messiah and he praised God for it. But he was under no illusion. He told the Blessed Virgin Mary, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be opposed, so the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. As it was then, so it will be until the wait is over. Jesus continues to be a sign that is spoken against. Our attitude and response to Jesus reveals our inner thoughts, whether we are amongst those who are being saved or those who are perishing. No one likes having their secret thoughts revealed for all to see. No wonder then that they will still try to silence Jesus and those who truly seek to be his followers. But having seen what we have seen and heard what we have heard, things even angels long to hear and see, it is impossible to silence us. We have a message the people need to hear and believe. And so, like Simeon, may our eyes be open to see God's salvation, and seeing it, may we be like Anna and give thanks to God for it and tell everyone we know about it. Amen.